right okay church so um so good to good to be with you all of uh, good to be with all of you though virtually um you know today we are at a significant uh, a significant moment in the course of the whole council of god and that's because we are in the final uh, sermon in the old testament um and uh, you know what a what a journey it has been over the last 7 to 8 months we've been looking through various uh, key themes right through the old testament and here we are today in our final uh, in our final sermon in this particular series i'm just going to be sharing my screen so today what we're going to be doing is we're going to look at the post exilic prophecies which is uh, which are the books of haggai zechariah and malachi and uh, we've just titled it as restore worship and worship to glorify god now these are the last three books in the entire old testament and the three significant prophets but before we get into that what i really want to do is uh, since we are at the last sermon we would just do a quick overview of uh, what has been happening so far we would just take a look at the chronology of where we have reached we won't go into every bit of detail but we would just get into um, what is sufficient for us to uh, get a hang of uh, whatever we have done so far uh, so you are all familiar with this particular chart uh, this is a chart which uh, categorizes the old testament books into foundational historical and instructional this was used in our very first session and several of the other speakers had also reminded us about this particular construct now we know that these instructional books which are right at the bottom which is so the three books that we are going to be addressing today is from these instructional books these instructional books were given to the people who are living in this historical context as they are trying to live out their life basis the foundational principles that god laid for them in the first five books of moses okay so i just want to state that before we go ahead and now we go ahead this is a chart chart which shows the chronology of the old testament this is not a chart that i created the credits are there at the bottom left but i thought this is a very nice depiction of 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 the key points in the chronology of the old testament and the books of the bible are there arranged and they are color coded for us to know what book falls into what category now what did we study right at the beginning okay one of the things that we studied right at the beginning in the book of genesis is we spoke about the creation how god created the world perfectly and when we say perfectly he created a world which was without sin he wanted man to have a personal relationship with him but unfortunately what happened is the free will which god gave man man used that to 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 disobey god and he fell into sin and as a result of the sin man was judged okay now along with the judgment which we read in genesis chapter 3 we also if you remember we also studied that god promised a seed which will come out of the woman and this seed was to crush the head of satan and what we and what we later on find is the rest of the old testament is all about god preparing the path for the seed to come and he's working right through history to to uh, for the arrival of the seed which is his holy son our lord jesus christ and moving on we also looked into the abrahamic covenant now the call of abraham was a significant moment in history and why do we say it's a significant moment in history because abraham was a person who lived in ur in in a, in a place in iraq but god called abraham out and god told him to go to a place that god would show him and he went towards the land of canaan and god tells him that he's going to make a great nation out of him god tells him that his descendants are going to be like the stars in the sky or like this like the sand in the seashore and abraham had a long wait he had a very long wait he 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 had become very old and 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 he thought that the promise of god is not going to be kept but but we know that um, sarah conceived and then he had abraham uh, sorry he uh, he had isaac and from isaac Uh, he had two children which is isaac uh, which is uh, esau and uh, and uh, jacob moving on we we know that uh, as he had esau and jacob we know that god rejected esau and god chose jacob now just keep this in mind because some of this we will be talking about today 
And then the, 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 we know that uh, the people went to Egypt. We know the story of Joseph. We looked into that. And we also know the exodus that had happened. And they were journeying towards, um, towards Canaan. And we know all the ups and downs that happened in the wilderness. And we know how Moses led the people in, an, in a spectacular manner and, and as they journeyed towards the promised land. And while they were at Mount Sinai, there was another covenant which was given. Now, this was a conditional covenant. Now, what is a conditional covenant? In this covenant, God told the people that if you obey me, and if you keep my precepts, and if you keep my law, I will prosper you. And I will prosper you so that you become a great nation. And, and he also proclaimed a curse. He said that if you disobey me, and if you run behind the idols which are there at that time, he said they, he will send other nations to conquer them. And that's exactly what happened eventually as we see. Moving on, after Moses dies. Now, we know that the death of Moses was, was quite a sad one for a man who did so much. He ultimately, he could just see the promised land standing on Mount Nebo, which is in today's Jordan. And he could see from a distance what the promised land looks like. But God raised up a worthy successor who is Joshua who led the people and, 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 and who helped settle them in the land. All the 12 tribes were settled on either side of the Jordan. And, and, and therefore, the, the land of Canaan was in the custody of God's own people. God kept his word. Okay. And then we move on. Uh, so, so then we come to the book of Judges. Now, in the book of Judges, we find that God raises these judges uh, at a time when when, when the oppressors, when the enemy oppressors, when, when, they, would, when, 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 you know, when they would indulge in excesses and when the people of uh, God would cry out to God, God would raise these judges who would come and fight these oppressors like the Philistines and he would redeem the people. Now, the people would be okay for some time, but, but true to their nature, after some time they would fall into sin. God will send another enemy nation to come and attack them. People would cry out to God and God will send another judge to redeem them. And we find that the cycle keeps going on. The cyclical failure and repentance is what we find in the book of Judges. Okay, now we move on from there and we come to the book of Samuel. Now, when we come to the book of Samuel, this is where the people go and request for a king. Now, God tells them that I'm your king. But people say that, no, all the nations of the world, they have king. All the neighboring nations, they have a king. So we want a king. And this is where monarchy begins in Israel. And we know that the first king was Saul and, 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 and Samuel anoints him and he becomes the first king. We also know how later there was David and there was Solomon. And, uh, and though David was anointed early after the death of Saul, he takes office and he becomes a king. And the period of David was, again, a spectacular one because he was one of the mightiest kings in, in, in the land of Israel. He, 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 he was a man of conquest. He was a brilliant administrator. He did a lot of things for God and for people. He was multifaceted. He was a king. He was, he was, uh, he was a composer. He was a lyricist. He wrote a lot of the Psalms. He was a great man of God. He had his failures, of course, which we know about. But he was a significant king in the entire history of Israel. Even in today, even today, on the flag of Israel, the star that is there, they call it the Star of David. That's the kind of respect that David commands even today for an Israelite. And after David comes the, the wisest man in the world, who is his son, Solomon. And, and, and Solomon, we know, he also wrote uh, some, of the, some of the books in the Bible. And however... Solomon is a king who started off well, but possibly um, we don't know at what stage he repented, but looks like he would have repented because uh, he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. And if Ecclesiastes is written towards the fag end of his life, then it is an indication that he probably repented because he went and married a lot of foreign women and they just dragged him down along with them. Now, after Solomon, as part of God's judgment, the kingdom of Israel splits into two. It splits into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom uh, had its capital as uh, Samaria, and the southern kingdom's capital was, was uh, Jerusalem. Now, the Davidic covenant was given to David in 2 Samuel. 
And, you know, we first looked at the Abrahamic covenant. So if you look at the Abrahamic covenant with a wide lens, the Davidic covenant is bringing the focus. It's, it's getting us to be a little more focused. And to David, God says that I will establish your, 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 your throne forever. Now, how does that happen? And now we know that that throne is speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who came from the line of David. Now, if you look at it, God was orchestrating history so that his holy son will come as promised through the line of David. Now, the northern kingdom, when they went into exile, they were lost. They are known as the lost tribes, but the southern kingdom was preserved and they were preserved only because God was keeping his word that that David's throne will be established forever. The, 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 the Lion of Judah, our Lord Jesus Christ, had to come from the tribe of Judah. And therefore, when we read the book of Kings and Chronicles, we see how God beautifully preserved the southern kingdom so that the king, the Lord Jesus Christ, can come from there. Um, we spoke about how the kingdom split. And then the people, as is their warned, they, 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 they repeatedly have these cycles of failure. And the Northern Kingdom really didn't have cycles of failure. They only had failure because all the about 20 kings who ruled over them, all of them were wicked. All of them were evil. You would remember kings like Ahab and his, and his, and his wicked wife, uh, King Jezebel, uh, sorry, Queen Jezebel. And God just ensures that they go into exile and the Assyrians take them into exile, never to return. The northern kingdom was lost for good and they did not return. However, the southern kingdom, despite the fact that they went into exile, they returned. And why did they return? Again, because God was keeping his promise. The southern kingdom had to be, prepared, had to be preserved and the Messiah would eventually come from the southern kingdom. And then we look at how these uh, prophetic books are arranged. We have the books of Hosea and Amos, which were written to the northern kingdom. So God is a God who is also just. He ensured that his people are warned before they went into exile. He sent prophets Hosea and Amos to warn them and to tell them that they would go into exile and to get them to repent from their sins, but they did not. And, and, and they eventually go into exile. The next set of books that we find here are the books which were written to the southern kingdom. These, 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 these books from Joel to Lamentation were all written to the southern kingdom. And then we move to the next set of books. And, 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 in, these, and in these books, we find in the books of Isaiah and Jeremiah, we find the new covenant, which is mentioned. So we looked at the Abrahamic covenant. We looked at the Mosaic covenant. We looked at the Davidic covenant, and here we come to the new covenant. Now, what is the new covenant? The focus gets a little more narrow. The new covenant is given to Israel. And in this new covenant, God gives a hope for Israel in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is in this covenant that we, the Gentiles, are also included. This is a very, very significant covenant. And, and, and this we find in the book of Isaiah and Jeremiah. As we move on to the next set of books, which is Jonah, Nahum, Obadiah. Now, these are three books which are written neither to the northern kingdom or the southern kingdom. The book of Jonah, we know that it was sent as a warning to the people of Nineveh. The book of Nahum, it actually talks about the judgment which is going to come because the people who once repented went back to their old ways. And the book of Obadiah is written to the Edomites, who are the descendants of Esau. And then we come to the exile books. So all the other books which we saw were written prior to the exile. Okay. And now we come to these books, which is the book of Daniel and Ezekiel. Now, now, now we had studied uh, the book of Daniel a um, few weeks back. And this, the book of Daniel and Ezekiel is written while the people are in exile, giving them hope about the future of Israel. And, and there are a lot of spectacular prophecies which are in these two books. Moving on, we move to the last section, which is what we will, we will talk about today. And that is the book of Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Last week, Raymond took us uh, briefly through the historical narrative, which we find in Ezra and Nehemiah. But today we're going to look into these three books, which are the books of Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Three amazing books. So what, what, what I plan to do today is to give you a quick overview of these three books, and then we'll get into the book of Haggai for a slightly uh, deeper study. Okay. 
So first we will look at the book of Haggai. Now, this is a quick overview of Haggai. I'm not going to go into each point that is mentioned here, but I just want to briefly set the context. Now, why was prophet Haggai raised and what was his ministry? Now, two prophets, both Haggai and Zechariah, were raised by the Lord in order to motivate the people or to enthuse the people to complete the work on the second temple. Now, the first temple, which was built by Solomon, was completely broken down by the Babylonians. Now, a temple is essential for the worship of a Jew because it is only in the temple that they would be able to bring sacrifices. They do not bring sacrifices anywhere else, and a temple is necessary. And it is in a temple that the Spirit of God dwells in a very special manner. His special presence is there in the temple of God. We, we find in the Old Testament that when Solomon dedicated the first temple, how, how God's special presence came into that temple. Now, what happened is these people, they were living in exile. They came back. They had started work on the temple, but due to some local opposition that came about from the Samaritans, they had stopped the work on the temple. And then they lost interest. They were, they, they, they were, they were going on with their lives and they did not find the motivation to, to finish the work on God's temple. And God sends these two prophets to, to, to push and motivate them to begin the work or to restart the work on the temple. So if you, if you come to uh, Haggai chapter 1 and in verse 4, God is actually telling them, is it time for you yourself to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? God is saying that you guys are living in nice homes, but look at my place. Look at my temple. It is lying, it is lying desolate. And God is telling them to go ahead and finish the work on the temple. And as we come to the end of chapter one, we see that the work on the temple is complete. Now, when it come, when you come to chapter two, what happens is, um, you know, some of the people who, who, who knew how the old temple was, who had seen Solomon's temple. Now, Solomon's temple was magnificent. It was an architectural wonder of that time. And these people felt that this particular temple is not as great or as, as, as spectacular as the first temple. But, but, but what Haggai tells them is, in verse 9, he says, the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace. He's saying that the latter glory of this temple will be greater because what he's referring to is the fact that in this temple, you know, in a couple of, couple of uh, few hundred years down the line, Jesus himself is going to be in this temple. And the glory of this temple, therefore, is going to be much more with the Son of Man himself going to be in this particular temple. And as we come to the end of, of, uh, of this book of, uh, of Haggai, like we see repeatedly in several places in the Old Testament prophecies, there is an indication of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, in the last verse, it speaks about Zerubbabel, and it is depicting Zerubbabel as, as a kind of Christ or as a type of Christ. And it is giving them a hope and future that they will find in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's how the book of Haggai ends. Two chapters, very simple, very simple book. It is a narrative. And it's, 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 it's actually one of my uh, favorite books in the Minor Prophets section. So I would encourage all of us to go back and uh, study these two books. Okay, now study this book. Now we come to the next book, which is, which is an overview of Zechariah. Zechariah is a very profound book in the in in the in the section of the minor prophets. Again, uh, you have this um, you have this overview here, but I'm not getting into all of that in detail. And you can do a study on your own. The book of Zechariah opens with a call for repentance. Now we know that all the prophets were used by God, asking people to come to repentance. It is quite unfortunate that uh, God has to repeatedly do that because here is a group of people that God had specially chosen for himself, but they would repeatedly go into sin. Even after coming back from exile, when you read about their attitude and when we read about their behavior, we find that they still didn't have any zeal for God. They kept going back to their old ways. So the book of Zechariah starts with this call for repentance. And you know, the book of Zechariah has some amazing visions. There are about eight visions that you will find in the initial sections of the book. And the, the initial section is, again, 
uh, going towards enthusing the people to rebuild the work on the temple. And towards the last section, uh, it speaks about the coming uh, hope that Israel has in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, 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 and you know, these, these visions are pretty spectacular. You know, there are these visions about the man and the horses. There are these visions about the four horns and the craftsman, man with the measuring line. And the good thing is, all these visions are given by God and the interpretation is also given in the book itself. So you don't need to go elsewhere for the interpretation. God has made it clear by giving the interpretation also within the same book. Okay, and this visual that you see here is a woman in the basket. And this is also one of the vision which was given, uh, which was given. And he's, he's talking about how wickedness will be removed from Israel in future. So go, please go read it. Uh, please read about these visions. Please read about the interpretation. And significantly, when we come towards the end of Zechariah, there are mentions about the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a beautiful section in, 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 in chapter 11, and we will come to that uh, towards the end of the sermon. And again, as we come to the end of this amazing book of Zechariah, in, in chapter 14, it finally points to the future. Like most of the, many of the prophecies which speaks about the end times, which speak about the millennium, it actually speaks about the future. And here, Prophet Zechariah is saying, a time will come when God will be king over all and he would rule on the earth. He's talking about the reign of the Messiah. And that is how he closes the book of Zechariah. We now come to the last book, which is the book of Malachi. Okay, again, a very short book. It's just got four chapters. It is a narrative, very easy to understand. And in the book of Zechariah, God is actually talking about the special love that he has for Jacob or for Israel, his own chosen nation. However, this nation whom God loved, they go into sin again. They go into a lot of detestable practices. And, and, and as you read this book, you know, this is the last book of the Old Testament. And as you read this book, sometimes you're, you, you will be wondering, when will these guys ever learn a lesson? with all the punishment that God gave them, sending them into exile, sending them numerous prophets to talk to them, they, it doesn't look like they've still learned a lesson. And, and, and as we read into this book, God is actually bringing out one accusation after the other. He's calling out the priests who were, who, were, who, who, who were supposed to be holy and who were the intermediaries. The priests themselves were culpable or were guilty of offering uh, sacrifices which were not godly in the eyes of God. And here again, there is a point to the Messiah who would eventually come. And, 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 and as this book ends, it speaks about Elijah, who is actually, again, a type of Christ. And, and, and that is how this book ends. And that is how the Old Testament ends. So today, what I want to do is I want us to just open our Bibles and come to Malachi and chapter 1. I'm just going to stop uh, sharing my screen and we can all just look into Malachi chapter one. Okay, Malachi chapter one, and we'll just go through each verse. It says the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. It says an oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. Now, whenever God sent a prophet to talk to his people and the words they speak were the words of God. It is God himself directly speaking to his people. And so he wanted them to take his words with utmost attention. And verse 2 says, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have I loved you? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob. He says, I have loved you. But you say, how have you loved us? People are not able to get, you know, as the Lord tells them that he loved them, they are saying, but how have you loved us? Now, what God is trying to say about Esau and Jacob is, if you come to verse 3, it says, But I have hated Esau, and I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals in the wilderness. Okay, so what God is saying is, out of the two brothers, I chose Jacob, and Esau I hated. And now we find this uh, being mentioned in the book of Romans as well. Now, imagine everybody, all of us, are guilty and are condemned to die. 
Now, out of say maybe a thousand people who are on the highway to hell and who are going into uh, who, are, who are going to the hellfire, God decides to pick a few and take them out and decides to show mercy and grace upon them. And here, that's what He did by taking a nation for Himself, by making the descendants of Jacob His own, and He rejects Esau. And God is saying, this is how I have loved you. You guys were destined to die. I have taken you from the highway to hell and put you on the path of righteousness. And yet you tell me that you do not love me. And they're telling this through their actions. Okay. And then when we come to verse four, it says, though Edom says we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins, says the Lord of hosts. They may build, but I will tear it down. Now, the Edomites, who are Jacob's descendants, they are trying to rebuild their lives, but the Lord is against them and they do not succeed. Whereas the children of Israel, right from the beginning, right from the call of Abraham till now, when Malachi is speaking, right through the history, God has been with them. God has been a covenant-keeping God. It is they who did not keep their covenant with God. And yet, they do not want to honor God. Yet they do not want to honor God. And verse 4, we continue. It says, they may build, but I will tear it down. Men will, men will call from the wicked territory and the people toward whom the God is indignant forever. You know, these guys just wouldn't want to honor God despite everything that God did for them. You know, it's, it's, it's actually amazing that the people of Israel can be so thankless before a holy God. If you, if you read all the history and if you read all these prophecies, you will actually wonder, why can't these people just get it? Why can't they just straighten out? But then we realize that we are also often like them. Despite all the repeated warnings that the word of God gives us through, through, through his holy word, through several people who speak, we also, like it says, like a dog goes back to its own vomit. We also often love to go back into our sin. We will come into the application a little later. We'll move on. You come to verse, uh, verse 5. It says, your eyes will see this and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. Now, this is speaking about a future perspective. He's saying that in future, when you look back and you see how God has, 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 has led his people wonderfully, you will look back and give thanks to God. But right now, you're not able to see that. And right now, you're still indulging in your sins. Okay, so that is the first section, which is verses one to five. We now move to the next section, which is verse six. In verse six, it says, a son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect? Says the Lord of hosts, you, O priests who despise my name. Now, obviously, God is speaking about a good son and he's speaking about a good servant. And he's saying if it's a good son, he would honor his father. If it's a good servant, he would honor his master. Now, that's the least that a father or that's the least that a master would expect out of the son or a servant. Now, here is a God who has done more than what a human father or a human master would do. And yet he says these people have snubbed them. Yet he says that they don't give him the honor or they don't give him the respect. And not only that, these people are not able to see how they are offending God. It says, but you say, how have you despised your name? So God is bringing an accusation and saying that you don't respect me, but people are saying, no, but how are we not uh, um, uh, respecting you? You know, this, this is often like, um, like a marriage. Sometimes in a marriage, you go to the um, husband and ask, how is your marriage doing? The husband will say, oh, fine, we're doing great. But then you go talk to the wife, she will tell a completely different story. This, this is something like that. You know, God says that these guys have not honored me. But when you talk to them, they will say, no, how have we despised your name? We seem to be doing okay. But God is actually displeased with them. And, 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 and again, what I want to bring to your attention is, you know, in verse two, when he said that I have loved you and as God brings these accusations towards them, you know, God is a God who cared for them very tenderly. He actually brought them to be a special nation for himself and he cared for them. Even in the wilderness, you might remember that verse in Deuteronomy chapter 29, which says that during the 40 years that I led you through the wilderness, your clothes did not wear out, nor did the sandals on your feet. 
that is how special these people were that is how much god cared for them he even gave them manna in the in 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 the desert he even fought their battles imagine the whole um, the jericho walls just coming down with people just blowing trumpets and by them shouting and going around you know god did spectacular things in their midst and yet yet this nation would repeatedly go back into sinning and verse 7 says that you're presenting defiled food upon my altar and you say how have we defiled you again god is saying that you are defiling you're bringing defiled food on the altar but they would say no but how have we defiled you as much as you bring an accusation these people are not not able to accept they are not able to confess and they are not able to repent because they would always want to ask a counter question back no but how but how show me what is the proof you know typically right this is how when people who are caught in sin would want to first react they want to talk back they want to answer back they don't want to accept the fact that they are at fault and that's what that is what these people were doing and through their action they were defiling the table of god the when we say the table of god it is the altar of god on which the sacrifices were taking place now again for a jew te- temple worship and the sacrifices in the temple were 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 the essence of their worship you can't you can't you can't really offer these sacrifices somehow god had prescribed certain laws and god had told them how exactly to offer the sacrifices and that is considered to be one of the most holy rituals and yet these people were violating that and now how how were they violating that if you come to verse it it says but when you present the blind for sacrifice is it not evil now you know um, uh, if you just jog your memory you will know that god expected them to offer a male goat god expected it to be blameless it expected it to be spotless you know everything was prescribed god wanted people to give their best to god but what were these guys doing they were presenting the the blind the blind in their flock they were bringing they were bringing it and giving it to the priests to sacrifice imagine the audacity that these people had and then it says and when you present the lame and sick is it not evil why not offer it to your governor would he be pleased with you or would he receive you kindly says the lord of hosts now i am thinking that these people would have thought that okay anyway this is going this animal is going to be cut up and put on the altar and burnt so then why give god the best right let's give the lame and the blind so that you know those animals are finished with and yet we we uh, we keep god also happy by by offering a sacrifice that would have been the attitude but god had clearly prescribed to them that they need to give him their best so look at the drifting that ha- that has happened uh, with these people they began to take god lightly they did not begin to value his instruction but yet they were doing these things so that they can check the box and they can somewhere have that feeling that okay we have given to god uh, what he wants they thought that god can be kept happy by just indulging in these rituals without considering how god wanted them to offer these sacrifices their hearts were away from god but they were offering these rituals and sacrifices with whatever was available be it lame or blind or with whatever animal that came their way and god is asking them is this how you would go and present to a governor now you know you should just think that the governor that god is speaking about here are not like today's governors in those days most of these guys were autocrats and you would you would you would your knees would knock if you were to go and stand before a king or a governor those days and god is asking is this the kind of sacrifice that you would bring to your governor the obvious answer is no you know and when you come to verse 9 it says but now will you not entreat god's favor that he may be gracious to us with such a offering on your part will he receive any of you kindly says the lord of hosts god is saying that with such shoddy sacrifice or which or with such shoddy uh, violation how do you think i am ever going to answer you okay moving on we'll come to verse 10 it says on that there were there, there were one among you oh that there were one among you who shut the gates that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar i am not pleased with you says the lord of hosts 
nor will I accept an offering from you. The Lord is just wishing that there would be someone who would just go and close the temple gates. He doesn't want to see these sacrifices. He has already rejected them. And he's saying it is better that you don't offer anything than bring the lame and the blind animals to me to sacrifice. I hope you are able to sense how upset God is. How upset God is. They are not only violating his command, they are not only indulging in sin, they are violating his command and they are, they are, they are somehow beginning to adhere to a ritual uh, with the essence of it being lost uh, long back. God is mightily upset and even the last prophets, the last prophet he sends into their midst to remind them to repent and turn from their ways. And just remember that this is after they went into exile. This is after they've been, they've been punished severely for all the sins that they have done. Come to, verse, um, uh, come to verse 11. Verse 11 says, For from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense is going to be offered to my name. And a grain offering that is pure for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. The Lord is saying that a time is coming when my name is going to be great and it's going to be proclaimed across the world. People from all over are going to be coming and are going to be worshiping the Lord. And this is, a, this is, this is possibly God is talking about a time in future when Jesus is going to rule over this whole world. And one thing that we need to know here is that God does everything to bring glory and honor to his own name. He's very particular that his name is not tarnished. And that is something which he expects all of us to do as well. You know, there are several verses which point to this, but I don't, you know, we just don't have time to take everything. In Isaiah chapter 42 and verse, uh, verse eight, it says, I am the Lord God, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. He says, I will not yield my glory to another. He is particular about the glory which is attached to his name. And that cannot be tarnished. And these people were doing things that were bringing, uh, that were bringing, uh, that, that, that was not helping the glory of God. They were tarnishing the name of the Lord through their actions and bringing sacrifices which were not pleasing to him. Say in, in the same chapter, Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 21, it says that the Lord was pleased for his righteousness sake to make the law great and glorious. Even the law that was given, the law that was given asking people to lead a holy life, it was given for his righteousness sake or for his name's sake. That is how much God values his name and the glory that is attached to his name. And here these people had no qualms in, 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 in offering shoddy worship and tarnishing the name of God. And verse 12 says, but you are profaning it in that you say the table of the Lord is defiled. And as for its fruit, its food is to be defiled. You know, I'll just read from NLT. It says, but you profane it by saying the Lord's table is defiled. Its food is contemptible. And you say, what a burden. And you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty, right? They have absolutely no qualms about defiling the table of the Lord or defiling the altar of God. Profane sacrifices, they, they dared to bring uh, to the altar. Let's look at verse 13. It says, you also say, my, how tiresome it is. Okay, I will again read this from, uh, read this from the NLT. It says, and you say, what a burden, and you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, lame, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? Yeah, should I? I mean, he's actually asking them, do you expect me to, to, to take all this, all this lame sacrifice that you bring to me? It is, it is, sometimes you just wonder, it is amazing that God has to actually spell out some of these things to these people. This is a nation with whom he has walked so closely with. This is a nation that he has spectacularly led. This is a nation uh, for whom, um, you know, he, he has, even while he sent them into exile, he eventually showed them that he's a covenant keeping God. It's a nation that he preserved for his name's glory. And yet, 
as we come to the end of the Old Testament, we realize that they still don't seem to have learned a lesson. They still, the natural tendency is to stray away from God and to stray away from God to such an extent that even the very sacrifice which is going to be offered on his altar, they would dare to, to violate the principles of God as they come to offer their sacrifice. And you know, God is so upset with them. God is mightily upset with them. And God is asking, how dare you do this? How dare you do this? Where is your fear? Where is your fear? You know, in, in the book of Isaiah, there is a verse which says that they grieved the Holy Spirit. They were grieving the heart of God with their repeated sins. No matter, I mean, I mean, there are 39 books in the Old Testament. And no matter how much you write and instruct these people, they would still repeatedly go back and, and, and go back to their old ways. They still don't seem to have learned a lesson. And here after these people lived in exile and after they came back, they were living comfortable lives. They just wanted to, you know, uh, they just wanted to check the box and, and just ensure that the rituals are done. How they did it, the sanctity of the rituals didn't matter. They somehow just wanted to do it and get it done away with. And what is, what is verse 14 say? It says, but cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am great, for I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is feared among the nations. It says, cursed be the swindler. So, so here's, what is, here's what is even worse. You know, in verse 14, uh, in NLT, it says, cursed is a cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it but then sacrifices a blemished animal. It's not that they don't have the right animal to, to offer, but, but they keep the best for themselves and give the worst to God. So church, as we, as, we, as, we, as we just listen to this and as we internalize this, you know, what is the application for us? You know, my, uh, my thoughts went to, you know, the worst that we know so well which is in the book of Romans, right? Now, these people were talking about their sacrifice. Now, what is the sacrifice for us? You know, Romans chapter 12 and verse 1 says, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. As we look down on the people of Judah for all their repeated failures, I just want us to think, how have we failed this God. How have we failed this God? We know that in the Old Testament, as God talks to his people, he repeatedly tells them that I have loved you, like we read in verse 2, I have loved you. There are various other references where he tells them that I have brought you from the land of Egypt. And in the land of Egypt, they were in, they were in slavery. Their backs were being broken and they cried out to God and God sent the plagues and he sent Moses, he parted the Red Sea and in a spectacular manner, he gave them even a land which they didn't own. He settled them in the land of Canaan, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, when, when it comes to us, right, when it comes to us, we were living in bondage. We were living in sin. We were living without hope. We were, we were uh, morally, spiritually, racially alienated from God. And yet, his grace reached out to the Gentiles. He made us his own children. And yet, we repeatedly, repeatedly, just like the Israelites, we also offer shoddy sacrifices to God, not just on a Sunday, but if our whole life is to be a living sacrifice or a living offering to God, can we say today that we are better than these people to whom this the prophet Malachi is talking about? What are the areas in our life that we can fix? What are the areas in our life that we can fix so that our life and our offering is holy and acceptable to God? You know, we will just look at a few verses in chapter 2 of Malachi itself. If you come to Ch Malachi chapter 2, we'll just quickly look at certain areas which God is pointing out to them. And we will, we will see how that applies to us as well. If you come to Malachi chapter 2, let's come to verse 10. It says, do we all have one father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously each against his brother so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? God is saying that, you know, you guys don't have love for one another. You're dealing treacherously against your own brothers. He's speaking about relationships. 
you know, it is just incredible. I mean, I've just been um, hearing about a few things, observing a few things. It's just incredible that how even amongst the believing community, there can be so much of angst and there can be so much of grudge against one another. And yet people have no qualms when they come together to worship the Lord God. I just want us to examine the relationship that each of us have, the relationship that we have with our spouse, the relationship that we have with our parents, the relationship that we have with one another within the church. Are they truly God honoring? Because here God is accusing the people of hating their brother. You know, the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. But I think this is something which as Christians, many people fail. They love to come on a Sunday. And they love to participate in the worship, but they don't want to love their neighbor. It is difficult. It is difficult, right? Each of us would have our various reasons, but the fact is God expects us to love one another as Christ loved us. And, 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 and let's look at verse 11. It says, Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves and has married the daughter of a foreign God. Now, this was something which the children of Israel repeatedly did. They would often go. In fact, uh, um, um, last week when Raven spoke from the book of uh, Ezra, we saw how he got them to reject their foreign wives. They loved to go and marry people that, that who God had told they shouldn't. You know, in the Old Testament, God expected um, racial purity as well from the Jews. They were only supposed to marry from within themselves. But they would profane the name of the Lord by going and marrying people who used to bow down to idols. Solomon is a great example of that. Now, when it comes to us, a lot of us are considering marriage. A lot of us are not married. A lot of us are looking for the ideal husband or for the ideal wife. You know, this is just a reminder, right? In the, in the New Testament, we find the verse that we shouldn't be yoked with unbelievers. Let the thought not even be in your mind. May you not even consider as good as someone is. Let us always remember that we, like here it says, um, we should not marry the daughter of a foreign God. That is something which we are supposed to shun and we are supposed to keep away from. Okay, that is point number two. As we move on, uh, I would like to come to uh, verse, uh, we'll read verse 12 and 13. It says, as for the man who does this, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob, everyone who awakes and answers or who presents an offering to the Lord of hosts. God is expecting such people who compromise on their marriage to be cut off. That's a warning. And verse 13 says, this is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and with groaning. Because he no longer regards the offering or accept it with favor from your hand. You know, people are going and weeping at the altar. They are shedding their tears. They are wondering, why is the Lord not answering them? And the Lord is asking, how can I answer you? How can I answer you? You're full of sin. You might be reminded of that verse from uh, Psalms uh, 66 and verse 18. It says, if I, if I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. God cannot hear when there is sin. You, no matter how much Tears you shed, it is time for you to introspect yourself and wonder why is God not answering you. I'm not saying God, with, God, God is saying no or God is putting you on weight because every time there is a sin in your life. But it is good for us to examine if there is sin. Because if there is sin, like the psalmist says, God will not listen. That is one thing which prevents God from answering our prayers. And that is what we, we, we see in, in, in verse 13. Verse 14, it says, and yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she's your companion and your wife by covenant. We have so many married people in this church. I want us to ask, I, I, I want to ask all the, all the hubbies, all the husbands, how are you dealing with your wives? We cannot take we cannot assume that every husband is treating his wife well. Whatever be the excuse, on the basis of Ephesians chapter 5, you know, a marriage is to be a reflection of the relationship that Christ has with his bride, the church. And, you know, we don't have time to get into this. And these are things that we know, but this is a good reminder. 
do we cherish do we nourish our wives are we presenting her beautiful to be presented to the lord jesus christ there are so many christian marriages which just look good on the outside but then but then you know you delve deeper there's a lot of muck out there there's there, there's a lot of stuff which has built over the years and which has accumulated and which 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 today has reached a stage where it is so difficult to resolve you know and i would like to to ask all the husbands in our church to ensure that you know it is your responsibility it is your responsibility to ensure that the your wife by covenant is taken care of and that your relationship truly reflects the love that christ has for his bride the church and how did he do that by going and dying for his bride the church by giving his blood and by redeeming and that is our standard and that is a standard and here god is again through malachi telling these people that you are sinning against their wife your your wife by covenant uh, let's read on verse 15 but not one has done so who has a remnant of the spirit and what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring take heed then to your spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth and then verse 16 for i hate divorce says the lord the god of israel and him who covers his garment with wrong says the lord of hosts so take heed to your spirit so that you do not deal treacherously now this is not a sermon on divorce or marriage or remarriage um we have all we have addressed all these issues but the fact is god is again telling them that i hate divorce because the context he is writing this these people were known for divorcing their wives the the, the the men they were known for divorcing their wife for the flimsiest of reasons so which is why god tells that you know i hate divorce hate is a very very strong word that god is using here saying that i hate divorce and as we come to verse 17 he says you have wearied the lord with your words yet you say how have we wearied him now now if you remember there is that if you, if 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 you i mean as we were reading this in as god brings an accusation these people would ask no but how but how right we saw that in verse 2 it says i have loved you but you say how have you loved us okay and verse 6 um um uh, you know uh, that i am a father where is my honor i am a master where is my respect and the people say but how have you despised your name they just want to talk back they just want to answer answer back all the time and here again they are continuing that same pattern he's asking when the lord says that they, he, he that they have wearied him he, they, he, they are asking but yet you say how have we wearied you it's almost like these people are oblivious to all what they've been doing you know god is being extremely patient with us god is being extremely patient with us just like how he sent multiple prophets just like how he sent multiple warnings to these people god has been repeatedly talking to us from the word of god and as we come to the end of the old testament it is it it is it is a good time for us to really look back and see how much of god's warnings and how much of god's instructions are we taking seriously and how much of it we have taken for granted is a life a holy sacrifice to god you know one one that is holy one that is acceptable and one which is a spiritual service of worship how have our lives been you know and then and then as we come to chapter 3 god is also telling them that they are robbing god they are not giving the uh, those days god, god god asked them to tithe and god is telling them that even that they are keeping for themselves now what is incredible is after doing all these things they would still come and offer their sacrifices to god they would still come and bring a lame offering to god a blind offering to god which itself is wrong their life is their life is completely um, uh, you know sin stricken they would bring shoddy sacrifices to god yet they would just be content or be happy with the fact that i have done my bit by giving a sacrifice to god they almost thought that you know they can just keep god happy and they won't get him annoyed if they just give some animal by way of a sacrifice you know 
um, I was, as I was going through this, uh, this, I was just thinking, you know, how patient God has been with each of us, how patient he's been with each of us, right? We have truly, we have truly sometimes taken our life for granted. You know, he's called us to a life of purity. Where are we with regard to that, right? We are very liberal with, with, uh, with our self-indulgence, right? And we try to stick to certain percentages, but when God is showing us a need, do we give liberally? Do we give liberally or do we say that, okay, this month I have met my target, so I will not. I'm speaking all of this to myself first before uh, talking to you. Is there syncretism? We, we, we studied about syncretism some time back. Is there the syncretism? On one hand, we want to worship God. On the other hand, we have the other gods that we try to worship or we try to keep happy. And, you know, this, this God deserves our everything. We can't say that this God deserves more. He deserves everything because everything that we have is because of him. Just like how the people of uh, Judah or the people of Israel were, right? They would have been like any other nation in the world, but God chose them. God elected them. God called them to be his own. And in the book of Isaiah, there's a verse where it says that he chose them so that they can be a light to the nations. And that's why he chose us as well, to be a light to the nation. We were all speeding towards hell, but God just pulled some of us away from that and put us on the highway to heaven, so to say. But what we are doing is we live very convenient lives. We live we live very convenient lives. We live a life that 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 is so comfortable. And yeah, and 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 um, and we 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 forget that that we were people who would have been rotting in hell. You know, just like uh, just like uh, the uh, the rich man and Lazarus, right? We would have been like the rich man. We would have been waiting for someone to just dip their finger in some water and quench the thirst. But praise be to God that he saved us. Praise be to God that we are on the other side of the chasm. But can we do, I mean, what can we do to please God? You know, we have to, our whole life has to be offered to God as a worship. You know, in, uh, in the book of Zechariah, uh, in verse, uh, verse 2, there is this phrase, saying, is this not a brand plucked from the fire? God is actually telling that the you guys are a brand which is plucked from the fire. He actually plucked us out of the fire and made us worthy instruments in his sight because of what the Lord Jesus Christ did. But what do we do? What do we do? And if we have been given a fresh lease of life, wouldn't we want to use that to glorify God? Imagine a person who was was, uh, say, diagnosed with a terminal illness, and he's just been given another five or 10 days. And, and you know, some miracle happens, and he gets a fresh lease of life. He, he comes across some wonder drug. He would want to tell about this to everybody, right? He would want to use his, 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 that fresh lease of life that he got for something worthy. Isn't that what we should be doing? Isn't that what we should be doing? We should try to ensure that our whole life continues to be uh, uh, an offering, a sweet-smelling aroma in the presence of God. You know, there is this man called um, uh, Kevin Hines. I don't know whether you've heard about him. You know, there is a famous suicide point in California, which is there is this famous bridge called the Golden Gate Bridge in, uh, in San Francisco. It's an architectural marvel. You can go and read about it. It is also known for its high suicide rates because if you jump from the bridge into the waters below, the chances are very less that you're going to survive. Many, many people, I think hundreds of people have jumped and committed suicide from this bridge. And there are very few people who have survived the suicide bit. And this man, Kevin Hines, also committed, or rather he attempted suicide by jumping from this, uh, from this bridge. But he, he miraculously survived. I think the Coast Guards rescued him and he miraculously survived. And today he actually goes around giving lectures and tries to give talks to prevent suicide, telling people that it is not worth it. And he wants to ensure that the life that he got back, he would have lost that life, but he wants to make his life worthy 
so that people who are battling depression, he himself was battling depression. So people who are battling depression and so on, he wants to go and tell them that it's not worth it. It's not worth taking your life. You know, he wants to use the life that he got um, for a better purpose. So church, what I want to tell you is that, you know, we have been plucked, you know, as a brand from fire, as a brand from hell. We've been plucked. Let's, let's, let's dedicate a life to him. Let's love the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's, let's worship him. Let's honor him. Um, let's give him all the glory. God is a God who is concerned about um, the glory um, that, um, uh, for, for the glory associated with his name. And let's ensure that we don't tarnish it. Um, you know, as I, as I close, I just want to um, read this small section from Zechariah, uh, Zechariah chapter 11. You know, this is speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ. And, you know, I was so reminded about how, how you know, the condescension of the Lord Jesus Christ and, and how he gave his life to us so that we are redeemed. You know, in Zechariah chapter 11, you know, um, Zechariah is being asked to do a certain task. We are not going to get into what the task is. And then uh, if you come to Zechariah chapter 11 and verse 12, you know, after he does this task, he says, I said to them, if it is good in your sight, give me my wages. If not, never mind. So they weighed out 30 shekels of silver as my wages. Okay, so the, for the task that Zechariah did, they're giving him 30 shekels of silver. And then the Lord told him, throw it to the potter that magnificent price at which I was valued by them. And it says, so I took the 30 shekels of silver and threw them to the potter in the house of the Lord. Now, what is this saying? Okay, now 30 pieces of silver is a very insignificant amount of money. In fact, if you go to, uh, we don't have the time, but if you go to Exodus chapter 21, you know, it speaks about blood money. Okay, if, 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 um, if somebody is killed, you know, you have to give blood money. In some cases, you have to lose your own life if you kill, uh, willing, uh, you know, on purpose, in a premeditated manner. In Exodus chapter 21, now, if I am a free man, and if I, by mistake, my ox, if my ox has killed the slave of another person, I can escape the punishment for that slave's death by giving certain blood money. And the blood money was 30 shekels of silver. It is a very small amount. It is a very small amount. 30 shekels of silver was, was, was pretty worthless amount. And here, for the work that Zechariah did, he was given 30 pieces of silver, which is worthless amount again. And here the Lord says, throw it to the potter, that magnificent price at which I was valued by them. So this is being, you know, God is being sarcastic, that magnificent price. It's actually, um, he's sarcastically saying that worthless money, go and throw it to the potter. And then he says, so I took the 30 shekels of silver and throw them to the potter in the house of the Lord. And this is quoted in the New Testament. Our Lord Jesus Christ was betrayed by Judas for 30 shekels of silver. That's it. 30 shekels of silver. The God of heaven and earth who came down as the son of man was betrayed for 30 shekels of silver. You know, the one who was priceless was betrayed for 30 shekels of silver. There was no value accorded to him even in his death. Imagine to what extent the God of this universe came down. But the salvation that he accomplished for us is, is actually priceless, right? And in First Peter chapter 1, verse, verse, um, verse 6 says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Verse 7, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is more precious than gold right? It is even more precious than gold. And verse 4 says to obtain an, in an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. What we have is more precious than gold or silver or anything. Though he was betrayed just for 30 shekels of silver, which was worthless, what we have inherited is more precious than gold. 
church can we live a life which which can we live a life which is which is truly worthy of being called as children may our lives be um, um, may our lives be consecrated to him may our lives be one that is a living that is worth being a living offering and a sacrifice to him as i close i would just like to read romans chapter 12 and verse 1 uh, once again therefore i urge you brethren by the mercies of god to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to god which is your spiritual service of worship and do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of god is that which is good and acceptable and perfect so with this we end uh, the book of malachi and uh, and uh, and you know in the next two weeks we will see how how between the old and the new testament there is a period known as the intertestament period and while god was silent in some ways there was a lot of things which were going in the background preparing the arrival for the messiah for our lord jesus christ the scripture foretold it all the prophets gave us enough to 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 understand what the messiah is going to be like right his death his death was foretold his birth was foretold there were so many things which the old testament has packed in and all of that is going to happen in the new testament and in the few years that we have between the old and the new god was again working a lot of things in the background for the arrival of the messiah just imagine the whole bible the whole bible the old testament people they looked ahead to the lord jesus christ and we now look behind we have the advantage of hindsight because the whole bible is complete and we see how god was working behind the scenes for the arrival of the lord jesus christ to bring salvation to the whole world to redeem us and to make us his own may his name be glorified uh, let's pray father in heaven we thank you for this time lord we thank you for um, for your presence with us today lord we pray that uh, as we live out our lives lord that um, lord that we would not be like the israelites lord we would not be people who despite being bought by your precious blood we would not be people who would who would just be ritualistic on the outside but our hearts being far away from you we pray that um, that our every minute and every hour and 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 every opportunity that we get we would live out our lives to be a worthy offering to you lord so that uh, it it it's a sweet smelling aroma in your presence lord lord jesus we pray that you would be with our personal lives you would be with our secret lives you would be with us in the places that no one else sees or no one else knows but we pray that like the psalmist says that lord try me and search me lord and if there is anything in me that needs to change we pray that you would help me to do that lord so that so that we are not just holy on the outside but but our every grain and 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 our every cell is holy and consecrated to you and uh, to your work lord thank you father for this time we thank you for this uh, privilege to come together and worship you father in jesus christ most holy name we ask and pray